This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Start off 2018 right with a trip to Breckenridge, Colorado for the annual Big Beers, Belgians, and Barley Wines Festival. January 4th through 6th, meet top brewers from around the country, enjoy world-class skiing and snowboarding, attend special beer dinners, and taste some strong, inventive, and warming beers with fellow enthusiasts. Check out bigbeersfestival.com for more information. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, editorial director, and co-founder of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest today on our podcast is the co-founder and head brewer, or whatever you call yourself. Head brewer. Head brewer from the Chamonix Creek Brewing, Jeremy Myers. They are in Croydon, Pennsylvania. Uh, brewery, almost 20,000 barrels per year today, uh, or this year. They produce a wide range of styles, everything from lagers to IPAs, um, have a few hot beers, and you've won a few awards along the way. Uh, Four-time Brewer of the Year, as named by the readers of Philly Beer Scene Magazine. Three-time uh, brewer, Brewery of the Year. Yep. Uh, you, know, you are four, four in a row and three in a row yep. on that. So uh, pretty dominant in the uh, in that mid-Atlantic Pennsylvania area. It's been a wild, wild yeah, couple yeah. of years. Yeah. So <laughs> welcome to the podcast, yeah, Jeremy Myers. Let me give you some background on this. I've known Jeremy for an incredibly long time, uh, since long before either of us were involved in craft beer. Uh, in my early days of media and publishing, I launched a, craft, a ska magazine, a ska zine, in 1995. Jeremy, at the time, had just launched a record label, Jumpstart Records, yep. um, uh, releasing ska and punk uh, music. I had done. I did a lot of work for him. Did a lot of uh, graphic design work did the for Jumpstart Records. Designed the, the, the Jumpstart. Yeah, designed the Jumpstart Records logo that's still in use. Um, we've spent a lot of uh, close personal time together as he evolved and uh, you know attended Siebel and got into the craft beer and brewing uh, the craft beer scene. Uh, you know, I was paying attention and drinking his beers, and then of course we launched this magazine in 2013, and he was one of the first person, first people I uh, connected with to to get information about beer and brewing and uh, you know to feed into our content stream and so uh it is my honor and pleasure to have jeremy on the podcast as we get this podcast rolling and thank uh, you so much for talking about beer i appreciate the invite absolutely absolutely and part of it's your uh, your fantastic gravelly voice that yeah, is so it's, good it's perfect for radio it's absolutely perfect it just rolls off exactly. this is my natural voice exactly so we're going to talk about brewing today and sure we're going to talk about making beer because that's what we talk about at craft beer and brewing um some of the beers uh, that you make, uh, the beers you've won the most awards from seem to be on the uh, the kind of lager and traditional style category, but the beer you make the most of is IPA. Definitely IPA. IPA. So uh, let's talk about your IPAs first. Uh, County Line IPA was one that uh, I remember tasting in your 2010 as you were getting that uh, that tasting room, um, or, sorry, getting the whole brewery up and running and built uh, on a fateful night. Oh, goodness. I remember that night. Yeah, well. that, was, that was a good night. Yeah. <laughs> was it raining that night? I feel it like was, it, was, it was raining that night. Yeah. yeah. I, feel, I feel like there was water in, in the brewery, too, because the, the roof was leaking. I have a picture of uh, you wearing a, a captain's hat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The tour guide. Yeah. The tour guide. Tour guide. Yeah, it's okay. tour guide, I think. Okay. Uh, those were days when you couldn't sell beer out of your out of the tap room. Of course, that tap room wasn't open because the brewery wasn't open. But uh, Actually, at that point, um, Pennsylvania law only re- allowed you. I'm fairly certain that when you were there at that point, 
Pennsylvania law only allowed you to sell as with a G license, production license, uh, brewery license. You could only sell cases and kegs. <laughs> um, so uh, the how much Pennsylvania has changed over the the five and a half years that we've been in business is crazy. It, so much of it was nothing that we ever thought we'd. Uh, you know, it was never in the business plan. Right. The things that we were never going to do or weren't going to be able to do. And I mean, for example, when we applied for our TTB brewery notice in November 2010, uh, the law got changed. I want to say it was it went into effect or it was signed December of 2011 that now then changed it so that brewery production breweries in Pennsylvania could sell any quantity they want for off premise. So, uh, so you could do cases, kegs, bottles, you know, crowlers, growlers. Uh, six packs, four packs, whatever. Um, but prior to that, you couldn't do any of those single 22-ounce bottles, you know, 750s. It always had to be at least a case or more. So if you wanted to get a case of, if you wanted to buy, a, you know, sours directly from the brewery, you'd have to buy, you know, 12, <laughs> you know, 12 bombers or 12. Who doesn't want a case of 12 yeah, bombers of exactly. your highly acidic beer? So they, uh, they changed that in, in December of 2011. And then fast forward to May of 2015, they then went, basically 180 and change it so that we could then sell beer for on-premise consumption in addition to all the off-premise sales. So that then lent us to opening a tap room. And then from then, you know, from, from that point, it's changed so much where the state is now basically basically giving us a full liquor license hmm. um, as part of like, I don't want to say concessions or just kind of exchanges and laws that now allow the grocery stores to sell wine, um, the wholesale distributors to sell less than a case. They can now sell six packs and 12 packs. As part of all that, they then allowed breweries to sell Pennsylvania mead, wine, wine and cider, along with any distilled spirit you want, whether it's from Pennsylvania or not. So uh, we currently now have, you know, we have a house red and white that comes from uh, Chasford Winery, Chasford Winery. Uh, and then we have uh, cider from Stone and Key, Cellars out of, out of Montgomeryville, and then Haymaker Mead as well. And then we... we we do carry some Pennsylvania spirits, but we usually, uh, at least in the tap room in Croydon, we, we save them for the brunches, the, the, the annual, well, not annual, the monthly brunches. So we do like some mixed cocktails and, yeah. and beer mosas type things uh, with, uh, with the spirits and whatnot. But we don't do a full liquor service at the tap room, just the, the wine, meat, and cider and beer. So, but that's, that's, it's to see where that's come, you know, in five years, I would never have envisioned any of that in the state of Pennsylvania at all. Yeah, I'm sure that's quite a change for your business. Let's talk about County Line, though. Uh, Hops, how'd you settle on it? How'd you design this beer? What was the, the genesis of that? I mean, I know when I talk to most brewers, they have an idea, they have a visualization of what they want it to taste like and then and what they want the mouthfeel to look like mm-hmm. and how they want it to smell. And they kind of re- try to reverse engineer that with a, with a mix of hops. Um, but at the same time, you want to, you know, you, the creative act is trying to envision something that doesn't necessarily exist yet. Yeah. Um, you know, where do you pull on for inspiration around that? And, uh, you know, what was... What was the driving charge to create this beer that uh, you probably had an inkling that you'd be making lots and lots of yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's no secret that IPAs are usually the flagship or number one brand for, right. for a brewery. I mean, for that beer in particular, also going back to 2008 and nine, you know, just leading up to, you know, really kicking everything off uh, in 2010, uh, like applying for the, the TTP, everything. Like all our batches prior to that, you know, for us, New England IPAs, like Hetty was just barely you know, filtering out of New England, you know, right. that's a funny, funny word to say, filtering. <laughs> um, it was barely getting out You've of, got all the know, puns. Yeah, right? I got all the puns. That was unintentional. Um, you know, that was, wasn't even really, you know, it was coming down, it was barely reaching our market. You might get a can here and there. It was you know, obviously pretty highly sought after, but still, sure. you know, to me, you know, Sculpin was the be all and end all. And, you know, it's still to a certain extent, um, although I, 
I'll be 100 percent honest. Not any, not for any particular reason, but I haven't had a Sculpin since the the Constellation takeover. Not for any reason other than I just haven't. Uh, but to me, you know, when Sculpin would make it to the East Coast and you'd see cases of it, originally you'd see it in bomber cases. You know, you'd you'd buy the whole case. You know, you'd, you'd you know, sure. That's when you'd take you know a hundred dollars and you'd buy a bomber case because you didn't know when you were going to see that beer again. So for Catalan, it obviously gets its inspiration from the West Coast. It's a West Coast style IPA through and through. Um, aggressively bitter, aggressively hopped, um, but it's also more of a traditional uh, American IPA recipe in the sense that you know it's getting hop additions and hop charges every 15 minutes. Uh, you know, the other side of it too is uh, you know Vinny from Russian River. You know, in my opinion, you know, and probably a lot of other people's opinion as well. Uh, you know, wrote the book on how to make IPAs. You know, so when you have someone like that, it's been an open book and resource uh, you know, of how he's made IPAs. Sure. You know, you, you you pay attention to that. You take you know you take notes. So. Uh, you know, we don't put any more than 10%, uh, you know, at least 10%, uh, no more than 10%, rather, there's going to be any, 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 any caramel malt or anything like that. You know, it's going to be all two row, uh, 20% dextrose, uh, up to upwards of 20% dextrose, and then maybe 10% is going to be like a C10 or C60 and some carapils. Um, so in this particular case, Catalan's a little weird in that regard because originally I was brewing it uh, in the small test patches with just two row, um, but I was just always trying to lighten up the color in the body. So I eventually ended up on a two row uh, pills mix. Um, so it's actually almost split half and half between two row and, and, and Pilsner malt. Uh, and then just a a, a, a because why not have two grain silos out in front of the brewery instead well, of one? We, you know, that wasn't the, the idea, but we were <laughs> going to have to do that anyway because of the large amount of German lagers. Right, right. So, and then we we do use a, a fair amount of Pilsner, so it's there. You know, might as well. You have forty thousand right. pounds of it at you know at your <laughs> at access to you know to to use it. So you might as well. And then it just has less than ten percent of Carapils, Munich ten, and C sixty, uh, and then the rest is. Uh, you know, pretty straightforward dry hopping, or excuse me, a hop schedule, you know, every 15 minutes. Uh, we have changed it a little bit over time. It used to be, you know, a first, you know, large kettle charge rate at 90 minute, uh, 90 minute boil. Um, you know, so a large kettle charge rate at 90 minutes and then hopped, you know, gratuitously every 15 minutes, you know, sort of, there's sort of a wave, high bittering charge, then kind of comes down, uh, levels out a little bit. Um, and then, you know, obviously as we get towards a later, later you know, part of the boil and, and towards knockout or, or whirlpool and then knockout, we're increasing our charge, but it's uh, Apollo. Originally, it was Warrior. Uh, I actually like it Warrior more as a hop, but uh, it's, it's a little bit easier to get now. But then they, the, the growers in Yakima are just putting so much uh, less Warrior in the ground as opposed mm. to some of these other. And it's been a huge monumental shift towards the aroma and flavor variety. So Warrior uh, contract pricing was going up really high, and so it was you know not you know when, why would you buy Warrior for twelve dollars a pound when you can get Apollo for seven. You know, right. And it's usually Apollo is a, you know, a little bit more, you know, a little bit higher in, in alpha acid to alpha acid as well. So you're not using as much in the kettle. Um, so that's the route we decide to go. Um, and that's pretty much been the predominant uh, bittering hop that we use for all our all our beers. Um, yeah. Although the German beers we use, we, we don't use American varieties. Do you use Apollo in, uh, in pellet form or do you use it in uh, extract form? Pellet. Um, although we are going to start, uh, we've been meaning to do it for a while. We've been wanting to, we, we can actually convert our, our Apollo contract to um, uh, calculated, uh, measured alpha acid uh, canisters from uh, from Steiner. That's one thing I really yeah. like about what Steiner will do is we say we need X amount of bittering units, you know, in this charge, they'll make you know the mm. cans. They'll 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 put it to those charges exactly, um, and then 
it would make sense for us to do that now too because we've now since the original uh, start of the brewery we've divided the first kettle uh, bittering charge to a first wort and then a, 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 a first kettle addition and we decided to do that because I, I definitely believe that there's a difference um, I feel like there's less of a harsh edge uh, to the bitterness I think it's a it's, the bitterness is still there but it's not so harsh or aggressive right um, so breaking up that 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 kettle charge to a first word uh, edition and then a kettle edition uh, is pretty much the only other difference. I mean, there's been some major differences. I mean, obviously at the beginning we didn't have a hop contract, so the hops that we were using and the, the beer had made been made with on the pilot version we didn't have access to. And right. This is 2010 and 11 when contracts were really tight and the, the market, you know, you know, had basically the hop market just crashed and you know, there wasn't enough out there, so people kind of went crazy. Um, so we had to adjust uh, initially, and, and we knew we'd get back around to getting and being able to use the hops that we wanted or had used originally in the, the pilot version. So there was times where there was a fair amount of nugget uh, in, in Calion Line. Um, but by the time we started bottling it, or definitely by the time we started canning it, we were under full contract, and the hops that we had, you know, minus Warrior, the hops that we had used, we had done some test batches to dry hop with Citra. Now it's dry hop with Mosaic, um, but if, by and large, it's you know so it's it's Apollo for bittering, uh, Columbus, uh, Simcoe Centennial, um, and Chinook. It goes it actually goes Chinook, uh, Chinook Columbus, Centennial, Simcoe, and then dry hopped with Mosaic. So, but it's. I don't want to say it's straightforward, but I mean, it's, you know, as far as the... It's a little bit classic, a little bit new school. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're, we're, definitely, both. we're definitely taking cues from, from uh, you know, some resources and people out there that have, have, have paved the way. You know, we, pretty much all of our IPAs, uh, they're going to... You know, I don't think we make a single hoppy beer that has over 10% of any grist that, uh, you know, any any caramel or, or non-two-row or, or base malt grist, um, whether it's Munich 10 or it's C10 or C40 or C60, there's never going to be more than 10% of that grain bill is going to be that. And then there's always nine, nine times out of 10, there's always a, a charge of dextrose. You know, there's always going to be yeah. some dextrose, whether it's, you know, 10% or 5%, 10% or 20%, it's somewhere in that. that you know, I find the caramel malt, uh, you know, move an interesting one. You know, a lot of IPA makers over the last five years have, have moved to, you know, to take that caramel malt, malt out. You know, these beers are getting lighter and lighter than they used to be when we we all got into this craft beer thing um and some of it was you know initially just the the experience of that lighter lighter beer lighter body um but now more and more research is coming out from brewers that are that are studying this that uh, uh greater oxidation occurs with uh, these higher rates of caramel malt use yeah and that it's accelerating uh you know the the oxidation uh, within Packaged beer. And I know the that other side of that too is the the flavor profile. Of those those grains of, the, of that malt also lends itself to some of the properties that you get from oxidized beer. Yeah. So if you have a higher concentration of like caramel sixty in a beer, yeah. You know if that beer sits around. You know you're going to notice it. You're going to notice that oxidation because that right. honey. You know, for me, oxidized flavors besides like cardboard and wet dog and all that stuff. Like the thing yeah. I, I notice, especially in in highly caramelized uh, caramel beers, is that uh, you know that honey character comes through you know it's overly sweet right. and it's it's not what you want um so that's that's definitely a you know another reason why we we kind of shy away from that stuff as well so. sure sure so it's what seemed like a happy accident or a coincidence uh you know in fact has had uh you know some significant impacts on the way that uh you know these beers hold up and the way that hops express themselves in these things yeah um you know so, but so dry hopping regimen for you guys 
Uh, again, uh, kind of going uh, from the book that Vinny you know, wrote, you know, uh, <laughs> line is... Uh, You're welcome to worship in the Church of Vinny because, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a serious acolyte on that church. Well, yeah, I definitely worship at that church, but the other side of it, too, is it's not, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a... It's a guide. It's not a rule, you know. Sure, it's, so for sure. us, you know, especially when you're starting a brewery and you know you want to make West Coast style IPAs, and you have you know what is arguably the best West Coast style IPA maker, right. you know, and he's been very open with the information that he has. Why not take that page and run with it? Yeah. Um, so that's you know, Caroline's the same thing. Uh, the dry hop, the the amount and the the time is based off of Pliny. It's just the first dry hop of Pliny. The yeah. Same amount. We don't double dry hop. Uh, but it's the same amount per barrel, um, you know, so it's, you know, directly driven from that. Um, and it's no secret, you know, I tell people that all the time. So sure. it's, you know, it's, you, you, it's definitely a West Coast IPA. I mean, it's kind of funny because so many people are now making hazy IPAs and cloudy IPAs and, and low, lower bitterness IPAs. Obviously, they, you know, they're, they're not nearly as bitter as their West, West Coast counterparts. We get a lot of people that are like, "Thank you for making a West Coast IPA." It's it's funny. It's interesting. It's more. It happens. The backlash more the, is real. I don't know if it's a backlash. It's, it's just that you know there are people that they have. This is the IPA that they want to drink. You know right. whether you know it's like you know IPA to me has always got to have a firm bitterness. It doesn't have to absolutely wreck and destroy sure. my palate. You know, but it it has to have a bitterness to it. And that's one of the things you know I, I'm not very fond of the New England style, um, and that's. I think also something that's been repeated to, to us by a lot of other people that they want that bitterness there. You know, I don't, again, I, I, we're not trying, you know, the IBU wars of the, you know, right. <laughs> of the mid two thousands, you know, 2005, you know, six, seven, eight, you know, there was this weird race to put a thousand IBUs in a beer. You know, that was always dumb to me too. Um, but I, I do enjoy bitterness in my beer, but I don't want it to feel like I'm going to have to scrape, you know, the resin of the hop off my tongue. You know, right. I, I want to, I want I wanted obviously to I wanted the bitterness to almost like clear my palate, clean my palate, you know, and I wanted to, to, to have a good aftertaste and ride for a little bit, but I don't want it to be like I'm, you know, eating barbecue and I can still taste the beer that I drank a half hour ago. Right. Stuff. right. So, but yeah, I mean Caroline's definitely, you know, your prototypical West Coast IPA and and, and that's by far our, our biggest seller, you know. When shape to shape of hops to come, your double IPA has uh, become uh, become a breakout hit in the region and uh, is growing rapidly. Yeah, it's our number two. It's neck and neck with Caroline. And actually in in Southeast PA, uh, so the Philadelphia area, Shape Can's actually outselling Caroline Can's right now. Wow. Um, but Caroline's still outselling Shape in New Jersey. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, Shape is, again, pretty much every beer that we, every hoppy beer, well, not just hoppy, but every beer we make, you know, you're always trying to learn or do something different, you know, right. from, the, from what you've done before. So, I mean, when I say, you know, we've done things that are close to New England style IPAs, it's we've taken characteristics or process things that are, you know, from those styles and taken them because we, we think that, they, that, you know, that's useful or it's, you know, for example, like biotransformation, I believe in that, you know, we just can't do it on our, our, most of our beers because we need, you know, yeast out of the bottom of these tanks to harvest into, to, to brewing other tanks. And so once we get a, a, a prop system, we're going to start dry hopping two days in, you know, in the fermentation like we'd rather do because I'm a big, big fan and believer of biotransformation. But then there's, you know, other beers like Caroline, you know, that's just, it's shape on steroids. That's all it is. Yeah. It's more or less, it, it, except, um, you mean shape is Caroline. Shape, shape is Caroline on steroids. Excuse me. Um, it's, you know, and then the only other side of that too was 
uh, double dry hop, but with citrus instead of mosaic. And then we switched up a few things uh, in the middle. Uh, I was trying to look for some hops that would be um, different than you know what was out there or you know what people were really using. Uh, one of them being Topaz, which at the time uh, our rep from Country Mall Group had come in and give us a sample uh, that we did a firkin, a dry hop to firkin with, and we really liked it. So I said, hey, I, I'm going to try making a beer, you know, a beer with this. So uh, Topaz uh, and then uh, Newport, which is a hop that most people you know, were sure. like, you know, like, what is that? Where are you, you know, why would you, why would you pick that? Uh, again, it was, I was also looking for some hops that we'd be able to get, you know, r- readily. It's not like I was, you know... Any, it doesn't take a genius to go out and try to make an IPA with Galaxy, but you know it's going to take you know I don't know you're going to have to sell blood to get the hop in the first place, and that's what we weren't trying to do. Right. Um, we wanted to be able to make a beer that we wanted with the hops that we could get. Um, at the time, not a lot of people were using Topaz, and unfortunately, no one's going to be really using Topaz much more, <laughs> including us, because uh, our entire contract for this year got cut, and we're being told that we're not going to be able to get it next year. Yeah. So we were able to get uh, some 2015 harvest uh, spot we bought like 2,000 pounds to get us through the rest of this year um, but it doesn't look like we're going to be able to get it next year so Topaz is going to be a tough one for us Newport's not a problem um, but yeah I mean we were looking at some of the uh, the characteristics of those hops and what we you know experienced using them Newport was the only one uh, in the in you know in that, in that in the, out of all those hops Newport was the only one that we hadn't used before but based on what we were seeing uh, you know it's different characteristics it's like it's oil content it's a uh, you know uh, mercine and stuff like that it's these are you know things that i was like all right well i like these numbers let's try it you know and and, and usually comes it's not super high alpha I'm, I'm not really uh especially when it comes to late kettle hops i i'm, I'm usually trying to look for sub 12 you know i don't even like to go that high if we have the choice but to like 10 alpha acid is usually what i'm looking for and in newport fit into that profile as well so that more or less shape is just kind of light on on steroids and Different hops, double dry hop again, following the you know, following more succinctly and in, in, yeah. in, uh, the double dry hop of Pliny, uh, and you know, it's just at the time when we released it, I don't think anyone, you know, Dirt Wolf from Victory was the only brewery, and brewery, you know, Victory was the only brewery I think around us that was making a super assertive West Coast style, uh, you know, double double IPA, yeah. know, big double dry hop, um, and I think that's one of the reasons why people you know connected and latched onto it so quickly. I mean, you know, also putting it in a 16 ounce can, then people start making comparison to obviously other sure, breweries and sure. stuff like that. So, you know, I, I never took a lot of the things that were being said, like, the, you know, people have told me, like, oh, this is like a heady killer. I'm like, no, it's not. Like, it's, I mean, you might like it more than heady, that's fine, but it's not, you know, they're both double IPAs, but they're they're not the sure, same. You know, you're, sure. you're comparing apples. And to me, anyway, you're comparing apples and oranges. I'm glad you like the beer, but that's fine. That's also not why we made it. We made it because we want to make a, you know, a big assertive double IPA. And again, I, kind of going back to the conversation we were having about Tommy Arthur I mean like you know Pizza Port and Board Brewing Gummy are a huge influence on me I mean like uh, we make a double IPA called Echemus that um, is a double IPA version of Simcoe City at least in my head what Simcoe City is which is like my favorite uh, IPA that uh, I've had it several times at the Solana Beach uh, Pizza Port and to me like that is the be all and end all like that is my IPA you know every time I have it it tastes exactly the way I remember it I love Simcoe as a hop uh, it's by far if it's not my favorite hop it's top you know definitely top two sure um, but that to me that's you know where the ins- a lot of the inspiration comes from I mean right. actually I, yesterday at the MicroStar uh, you know event at, uh, at the View House they had their graveyard pale ale and uh, I got it and I was like well this isn't a pale ale it's definitely an IPA you know it's you know way way not not a pale ale but uh, to me that's what they you know that's what they do and they do it right. great you know and 
and and that's where we take our clues you know our, a lot of our, our cues rather from um but that doesn't mean that we haven't shifted you know and, and every hoppy beer we've made since has changed you know somewhat whether it's you know the hops we're using the process you know you know the, the malts we're using and we're, we're definitely uh i'm trying specifically you know with when it comes to in regards to new england ipas i'm trying to do you know to to mimic things or like go towards things like you know a more of a, a rounded feel less bitterness you know but i still want there to be bitterness there but i don't want it to be as a, a sort of aggressive as like shape or kind line um we're looking for that bio transformation you know i don't mind if it's not if it's you know if it's hazy when you um, say bio transformation for those that may not be familiar with it what we're talking about is uh pitching a dry hop while there's still yeast before yeast is hit your, your before your beers hit a terminal gravity mm-hmm. uh while it's still fermenting out and uh you know the thought is that there is some uh, uh, beneficial interaction between that fermenting yeasts and uh, the the hops flavors yep. um a lot of the the conversion of uh you know the of the oils and, and other essential you know flavonoids in in the in the hop to uh more citrus or, or fruit-like characteristics so actually yeah. i was talking to one of our brewers the other day where he had read a white paper that um there is some researchers had done a similar thing um with coriander and like the lineal uh in uh in coriander it goes through the same biotransformation as as it's you know the, as it does in hops uh if dry pitch or dry hop you know dry coriander you know two days sure, in, no. you know, i mean it's the same oil i mean you think of it i mean you are you have a you have this chemical reaction for all intents and purposes yeah. you know yeast is it's a natural organic process so it's it's creating heat it's creating energy it's a chemical reaction so you're going to have you know if you're adding an ingredient into that i, I kind of we, we we almost call it like act it's actually like putting gasoline on a fire when you're doing it and you have to be very careful when you do it as well because it and i've seen it happen twice now <laughs> where if you're not paying attention or you do it too fast you're going to get a, a bath of about 300 gallons of beer that will shoot out of the top of that hot port <laughs> um i've seen it happen twice in the past four years once in the past month yeah um, but uh you have to be careful you know even even if the beer is not an active fermentation you can have a lot of uh, nucleation sites that the co2 will break out real hard um right. when you when you dry hop so if you're not paying attention even when the beer is at terminal gravity when dry hopping it can happen and it's even harder and something you have to pay attention to a lot more when you're doing it when you're at the height you know at, at, at high fermentation so yeah i mean that's something that we've we've been messing around with like um so our new session ipa uh keep it on the down uh keep it on the dl keep it on the down low um that is using a combination of a few different things um so we, you know there's there's oats in that um and we're mashing higher so we have more body uh, you know a little bit more residual sugar we're not you know it's also not uh nearly assertively hopped as much there's a, a small first word charge charge and then there's nothing until the 30th minute um and which even by a lot of standards when it comes to a new england not again this isn't we're not trying to be a new england but we're trying to use you know we're shifting a little bit you right know. also a few things that have changed that we've noticed that we've been able to calculate or at least more uh, accurately measure is that we you know from when we started to where we are now we're getting a lot more late kettle uh, efficiency and, and, and utilization rates uh from our hops so you know we're now relying more on late kettle additions for those ibus as opposed to like huge charges at the beginning and, and carrying through like every 15 minutes um so like a beer like keep it on the dl while you were doing things like we have oats so we're you know and and, and there's less dextrose in that we're mashing higher uh you know it's got a small first word charge and then nothing until the 30th minute you know on a 90 minute boil um 
you know, all these things, and then we're dry hopping two days into fermentation. All these things are, are, are processed, you know, processed that were driven specifically from the New England, you know, IPA style. And then one of the things I think it's cool that we, we do with, with this beer and we've done with a couple other beers now too is that um, we're obviously trying to reduce as much oxygen ingress as possible. And dry hopping a tank traditionally like you normally would with a, you know, a ladder or a scissor lift and you go up and you open the hot port and you dump everything in and then you're just exposing all that, that beer to to oxygen and then trying to, you know, to blow CO2 through the cone to, to, to you know, push it out. One of the ways we've uh, worked with one of the new tools we have being a centrifuge that we got a year ago is that we'll dry hop two days in the fermentation and then we'll have a seven day dry hop. And if you know, the beer has a second dry hop, we'll then crash it after it's a seven days. We've done a forced acid test, make sure everything's good. After seven days, we'll crash it down to 32 degrees, hold it for 24 hours, then spin it through the centrifuge onto or into another tank with the dry hop already in the tank waiting for it. And the tank's been purged down below 25 ppb. So our oxygen pickup, that's as far as we can do right now, um, is probably the best we can do is, is eliminating as much oxygen with what we have in house, um, and that's I honestly believe that's made a huge difference in some of those beers. They, yeah, they they, they they taste fresher even when they're super young. Um, and then no, I believe it, and I think that's something that you know a lot of beer fans don't really realize that this is you know a highly technical process uh, investment and structure that's needed to make some of these products and to you know, continue innov- innovating so that you can get them to taste as good as they want. I remember I was talking to Phil Leinert of Omegong, and when they started making IPAs, they had to do the same exact thing. You know, I just wasn't happy getting some of the slightly oxidative flavors out of those IPAs, and they had to, uh, compl- you know, they've, they've moved to a fully purged uh, dry hopping regimen so that they could eliminate oxygen in every single part of, yeah, of the, the equation. And that uh, sounds like you all have done the same thing, a little different. Right. Different I mean, structure. When you have, uh, you know, if you have the tools in the tool shed, you try to use it. And the centrifuge right. is, you know, not just a tool for uh, clarifying the beer and getting more beer, you know, liquid out and, you know, increasing your production and yield. It's something you can do in that regards where, you know, why not spin the beer on the second dry hop, you know, with a tank that's been purged, you know, pretty, you know, yeah. pretty low. Um, so we're minimizing that as much as possible. And then from there, we'll then rack off of that second dry hop. So anything, any organic material, whether it be yeast or, you know, troub or, or, or hop that was in the beer, you know, prior to the first, you know, spin is gone. But anything that's, you know, any 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 dry hop that we go on to, anything that ends up in the final product, that's fine. You know, like again, I don't have a problem with hazy beers. In fact, sometimes I want more you sure, know, of that because sure. then it's also a pure expression of just the hop, as opposed right. to. I mean, I, we're you know, the reason why those beers don't stand and they don't last very long, they they degrade and you know so quickly is that 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 protein and that yeast kills it. You know. It, it's great for two, three weeks, and then it is—it's like a, it, it's an, an, a nosedive. You know, by doing what we're doing, at least you know we feel that you know, we're you know obviously we're eliminating two out of three things that yeah. make that beer you know spoil quicker. So, and we're still keeping an aspect that we want. So you know, it's, I'm not saying it's perfect or it's the best or the greatest, but it's worked out pretty well for us. Um, we're gonna do another version. So we did um, something that was actually built exactly like that, um, which was uh, Shape of Haze to Come, uh, which is just shape. Uh, it's shape of hops to come, but the hops, uh, the hop, the hop regimen is completely changed. Um, there's no, uh, it's not like a huge, there's no, you know, early kettle and nothing. It's, uh, one small first wart charge and then nothing until the 20th minute. Um, and then it's you know, 20 minutes, you know, it's like 20, 15, 10, you know, five, zero. And then we whirlpool for 45 minutes, 15 minutes in the whirlpool, we'll add another charge. 
um, and then it's uh, it's all the same hops as as shape, um, except for the dry hop is mosaic and citra, and it's a double dry hop again. Same same amount, so same exact. So we're doing that uh, again here next month, um, but we're gonna do a mango version of it. So we're gonna do the same 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 process, but. Uh, you know, we'll do the single, the first dry hop two days in fermentation, seven days, crash at 32, spin onto the second dry hop. But the second dry hop is going to be the, the dry hop and the mango. Mm-hmm. And then, so again, we're, you know, we're going to rack off of that second dry hop and, and the mango directly to package beer. So I expect there to obviously to have the haze from the dry hop and then also, you know, pectin from the fruit, um, which would probably make it hazier. But the beer does, you know, all those, you know, the 5,000 cans that we do each, you know, of those of those tanks, and there's little mini kegs running around there with more surface area so that, you know, it does dry or drop out pretty quickly and clarify pretty quickly, but it's still, it's hazy. Again, you know, that's combining both worlds. So that makes us, you know, I don't want to say more comfortable, but, you know, we, we're definitely a process and a, and a quality-driven brewery, so right. these are things that we're trying to do. Now, 2000, you know, 2018, we have two straight-up legit, uh, New England style, you know, IPAs that we are going to make. <laughs> going to um, do it. Uh. We, again, we're, yeah. but we're also doing this under, you know, the conditions that we want and that sure. we're going to set. You know, sure. I, we're not making them just because they're the hot thing that, you know, people want. You know, we want to drink them too. But if everyone else is doing it, why do we need to make every single one of ours? Well, there's a couple couple of truisms here. And, uh, you know, one of those is that on the leading edge of, of New England IPA, New England hazy style IPA makers, um, even those that are that are leading that charge are working to get yeast out of those beers, and a lot of them now have zero yeast, uh, and that haze is, that they're producing in the beer is not from yeast because yeast leads to instability in that package, um, and they are also trying to reduce you know that protein as much as they can um, because they don't want anything in those that can precipitate out. Yeah. Um, you know, if you want to maintain that that haze, you know, you, you need to treat it like a Hefeweizen and, yeah. uh, you know, use some of the historical strategies for that. And that does not include, you know, leaving a ton of yeast in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them that I've talked to are now, you know, they've tested I mean, and played them. They have zero yeast left in these. Um, you know, Trillium, of course, is centrifuging their, their hazy beers. Uh, 13 in Colorado is using Clarity Firm on their, uh, their hazy beers, uh, you know, again, to drop proteins out. And so there's a number of different strategies, um, you know, but the goal is to create stable haze yeah. and not, uh, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, it's not just stable haze, but it's stable beer, you know, right. and if you can, uh, it's one of those things too, where I've said, I mean, a million times that if you can make those beers taste like they do and you can one, have more shelf stability and two, they'll be clear. Do you think brewers wouldn't do it? They would. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just because, you know, there's a mindset and there's, just this bias towards the fact that, oh, it's hazy, it's going to be good, you know, because <laughs> that is real. That, that, that's sure, a, that's sure. a truism in the market right now, but it shouldn't dominate or override your, your you know, your background and your, you know, your abilities as a brewer and your knowledge as a brewer says and knows that if I make, if I can make this beer and it's clear, and it's, if I can make this beer and it's hazy and then I can make the same version that's clear and it'll last on a shelf or taste, you know, like it should a month longer than it should or it was then you think they wouldn't do that of course they would yeah you know? so so you're gonna make a clear new england style ipa no <laughs> we, again going back to the centrifuge we've messed around it's the next trend yeah. everyone's gonna be doing it well i mean again we're you know we are actually with keep it on the dl that's the idea is yeah. to be you know it's not it's gonna be a little hazy because it's just taking your racked off that second dry hop but again we're trying to make that beer as you know as, right. as, as clear as possible with a little bit of haze, but also taste like those beers. You yeah, know? it probably right and right now it still has a little bit more bitterness than what most people would 
classify or like want in that style but that's fine yeah. again we're not calling it a New England we just call it an, an unfiltered you know session sure, IPA sure. which uh, is going to go full time starting January so that'll be <laughs> well there you go yeah so your IPAs use mixes five or six hops in the lineup that's uh, you know that there's a you know number of brewers like uh, Jeff Irway from La Cumbre that I've talked to before and they've you know, they, they're very clear and intentional about using mm-hmm. bigger mixes of hops, given, uh, you know, what we talked about before, the uh, the kind of agricultural nature of hops and some of the shifting uh, characters in those. Um, and they've always felt that using a, broader, a bigger number of hops means that if they have to sub anything out or if something is changing, then the small changes that happen in each of those yeah, know, I mean, don't impact the whole as much as if you are you know, pitching the entire beer on, on this single hop and have it change in a yeah. significant way. I mean, there's um, definitely a logistical advantage to doing that, but also I think, uh, I mean, my experience, while you you know, you'll get a batch of this hop and it's everything you want it to be is like, you're not going to get that batch ever again. <laughs> yeah. So for me, one of the reasons why we blend or use multiple, like for example, keep it on the DLs dry hopped with a uh, Citra, uh, Kohatu and, and Azaka, you know, and we, that's a, that's a purposeful thing uh, and reason why we've done that because there's flavor attributes of each of those hops that we want and we're trying to meld together. You know, for example, citra obviously has that huge citrus note, that grapefruit, um, but it also can be, you know, pretty riny, you know, riny or pithy, you know, a little bit of bitterness with it. And it's obviously got, uh, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, it can be a lot of a pine pine note as well, resiny pine note. Um, so we want that citrus forward and we want a little bit of that pine. Whereas like Kohatu, you know, everything, I had read about that when we, before we had done the pilot version of the beer was everyone, the, the, the biggest explanation description was this taste and smells like Fruit Loops or, or Fruity Pebbles. And I was like, I got to try this. One. <laughs> um, so we did and sure as, you know, sure as, you know, right as rain, it, it, it smells, it, it reminds me of the milk in your Fruit Loops bowl. You know, mm-hmm. that's what it smells and it tastes like. Um, and so that mixture with the citra and then also we get tons of tropical note like uh, stone fruit, like peaches or apricots from, from the Izaka. So like you're getting, it's shot, you know, like Kohatu is like this mango and papaya or guava, you know, this Fruit Loops thing going. And you have the citrus with, a, you know, pine coming from the from the, the citra. And then the Izaka is more of, you know, this guava and this, and this mango, you know, this tropical right. fruit stuff. It, it just works, you know, we're, we're working them together. Whereas, you know, if you're dry hopping a beer uh, with just one hop, you're, that's that's going to be that note. You know, that's that, that that hop is going to define that beer. You know, which is fine. I, I enjoy that. I enjoy that as you know. I'm not really big into to smash beers, um, but and there's characteristics of single dry hop. You know, varietal dry hops that I, I like as well. But I also, as a brewer, want to to use all the tools in the shed. So excuse me. So that's why we we do a lot of blends. Lately, it's been a lot more blends, um, and we've done it a lot more actually with with some of the dry hop saisons. We've noticed. You know, we're we're pairing a lot of the the fruit that we're getting from. Uh, the ester, you know, quality, you know, from the Brett and from the from the, the sack that we, we, we have in our fooders uh, to dry hop with these, you know, one thing we've done a little, I'd say wrong with uh, our saisons is we've overly dry hopped them. I feel like there's uh, at least what we're getting out of oak. Um, you don't need to dry hop on a, a double high, you know, dry you know, double IPA rate, right? Um, because a lot of the flavors and aromas that you, you already have in the beer that you're gonna, you know, put with a hop like. They, you would think that because there's so much of it there that it would work well, but it doesn't. They actually clash more than than, hmm. than working, in my opinion, and, and what I experienced out of our wood. You know what we've gotten out of our fooders. Like I'd say, like the first batch of Logic and Reason was too heavy-handed on the dry hop, um, whereas the second batch was you know much more in line. You know we were a lot lighter, 
uh, with a dry hop in, it worked much better. What are your rough pounds per barrels number on those? Uh, on uh, Logic Reason or just across sure, the board? Sure, no, uh, So, uh, Caroline is actually, uh, like, uh, Caroline's about two-thirds, or excuse me, yeah, two-thirds of a pound per barrel uh, shape, and because of the double dry hop goes up to about a pound and a quarter. Um, but we've done, like, Echamis and Good Problem, you know, now you're edging up towards, you know, between two and three pounds per, per barrel. Uh, and then again, we, you know, the first batches of some of our dry hop saisons were following the, that lead, and it was way too heavy-handed for the saisons, at least in my opinion. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, it it varies. You know, again, it's and also it's a, a varietal thing too. There's certain hops that you don't have to use as much. You know, um, mosaic and citra being like hops that are very pungent, very strong. Sure. I mean, if you're going to dry hop with those, you don't need to dry hop with as much of those as you would dry hop with, with say, Nugget. I know Nugget's yeah. not as sexy as the hop as it was years past, but i got to tell you what, the selection I did on Monday, the best hop on the table was a Nugget. And it was so unique. It was definitely Nugget, but it was such a uniquely good uh, batch of Nugget. We actually, you know, when the rep walked, our rep walked back in the, in the uh, the room. I said, "Hey, man, you gotta you gotta smell this nugget. This is out of control. I've never smelled nugget that was so complex. Like nugget to me is usually like a lot of pine, a little bit of like citrus. Like it's somewhere between. It's almost to me, it's like the antithesis of of Cascade. Cascade being this very you know floral and and citrus forward uh, you know hop where you know with a little bit of pine. Whereas nugget to me is always the opposite of that. It's a lot of lot of pine with a little bit of citrus. Whereas this batch in particular was equal parts pine, equal parts citrus, and it even had like some some tropical stone fruit and, and some coconut in it. And I and I, I had to rep smell it and, and, and rub it and smell it and he's like, I gotta go upstairs and tell the you know, tell them tell them you guys found this. I was like, we want you know our you know our five thousand pounds are coming from this. So and that's that's cool because that's Again, going back to the selection, not to harp on that, but that's again giving us the ability to, you know, we can make a beer with that hop. That you know, it's it's not going to be the sexy, cool, available hop. But I guarantee you, but I feel like if we make that beer with that hop, it's going to be a really good beer because it's exactly what we want out of that hop. You know, whereas, you know, if I just bought forty-four pounds of nugget on spot, there's no guarantee that's going to be what you know. I, I would more or less only buy it off a spot like that, not knowing what it's going to give me. That it's right. going to be like, well, this is we're making your your basic American amber ale, you know, no, 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 you know, Northwest amber amber ale, and it's we're going to use nugget. It's that's what it's supposed to have, you know, Chinook and nugget, you know. But uh, no, it's we could definitely use this hop in in, in some different scenarios. I would love to you know dry hop some saisons uh, with it, you know, and mix mix with like we've been doing uh, we've been doing a couple different lately, like with Calypso uh, Denali. Uh, Citra, uh, got some Galaxy. We just did a version of uh, uh, of a straight single single uh, yeast strain saison called High Plateau. Um, that's dry hopped with uh, with Citra and uh, Citra and Galaxy that came out real well that we were happy with. So I mean, yeah, it's mixing up hops is I think is super important because again, you can like the characteristics of one hop, but you're not going to get that unless you're picking ten thousand pounds of that batch. Right. It's you know every in every year is going to be hard to, to replicate and duplicate that. So, for me, uh, one of the reasons why we do what we, we do when it comes to multiple varieties and especially in the dry hop is to to play off of their you know their their characteristics and also uh, if there is an issue like topaz, sure, uh, you sure, know, we we can figure it out. Now this talk of hop selection has to be utterly frustrating for anyone who's a home brewer. The uh, you know the act of of choosing those hops is certainly not as easy as it is for uh, for somebody on the commercial scale. Um, yeah, 
you've done a lot of homebrewing in yeah, your time. Still do. Um, still do. All right. Uh, you know, when you're when you're buying hops at a homebrew store, uh, you know, what do you look for? How do you how do you evaluate that? How many times have you opened up a packet of hops and uh, not used it just because uh, the aroma is not popping and it's not giving what you want? So I've been very fortunate. Uh, you know, I've been a professional brewer now for uh, next May will be the start of my tenth year. Um, so I've been lucky that when I am doing homebrew, I have access to the hops in the brewery. So oh, I actually jerk. I am a jerk. <laughs> I haven't bought hops in a homebrew store in a while. Um, what I have bought actually recently is uh, we have gotten uh, a lot of whole leaf um, for uh, like our, our our hop rocket, our Randall in the brewery. So we buy a fair amount of whole leaf uh, to run shape, Caroline, whatever you know through. Um, so we we are seeing a lot of good. You know, good good hop and a lot of bad hop. In that respect, I'd say there's, you know, it gets pretty sketchy. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I think it's fairly, you know, common knowledge now that home and homebrewers have to know that, you know, when they're getting their hops, it's after all the brewers do their selection, you know, and uh, it's they're not packaged, you know, and this is something I know that the growers, you know, are, are you know, the the brokers are trying to to get better at, but. You know, they're not packaging these hops the way they're packaging the hops for, for you know, production breweries right. and whatnot. So. Well, I would say there's a, there's a variety of that. You know, there are some homebrew shops where they are buying larger lots, you know, and, and those kinds of brewer packaging and then oh, yeah. cut, cutting them up and then and yeah. re, you know, vacuum, vacuum sealing, sealing them. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, but, you know, there's always a question of are they doing that in a low oxygen or no be, oxygen yeah. environment? I would be more likely to buy. Or there's know, BSG that's doing nitro-flushed packaging yeah. straight out of their plant in Yakima in order to, you know, you know keep really impressive plant by the way it's a real it's a relatively new plant so yeah it's, well it's i think it's the newest processing plant in yakima they say it's got the most up-to-date pelletizing yeah. uh, technology uh, in the entire industry yeah it's a real nice facility yeah so. um you know but there there is an attempt there to uh you know to make sure that the hops that get out to you know to homebrew shops are are treated as nicely as yeah. uh, the yeah. hops that get to brewers That's, i mean that would be the biggest drawback when i was homebrewing is that you get some hops that are great and then some are just a mess you know they're, they're cheesy Right, you know, it's, they're just old. You know, the other side of it too is you have to go to a homebrew store. Uh, you know, if you're just getting into homebrew and you, you you have a local store, it's great to support them. But like, make sure that they're going through their their raw materials quickly. I mean, look at the dates on the yeast vials. You know, look at the dates on the hops. I mean, if they're a smaller shop, there's there may be a good chance that they're not going through inventory nearly as quickly as a larger shop would with a lot more inventory. Although vice versa, these larger shops carry so much inventory, they're not blowing through some varieties and some right. you know different yeast types as quickly as others. So you may have it. You know, there's a good chance you might run into some older stuff. So don't be afraid to you know look at the dates. I mean. Uh, one of the things that I think is going to differentiate breweries in the coming years is really going to be ingredient driven in the sense that the quality ingredients. I mean, we've been talking about sure quality hops and, 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 and I, that directly leads to, to the quality of the beer, but you know, it can lead to the quality, but I think it's something that's going to differentiate breweries now, you know, is how much, you know, are you really involved to me in selecting your raw materials? You know, is it, is it just hop selection? Are you going out, you know, to the you, know, the, you know, working with your, the malt companies or, you know, I, one of the things I've been dying to do for the past five years is I want to go to the malt school out at the university. It's uh, North Dakota out of Fargo and mm. they, they go out to the barley fields and the, you know, the barley growing training uh, department there. Uh, I've been wanting to do that forever for like really the last five, six years I've been meaning to do it. Um, but I've been, I've been wanting to do it for a long time and that's huge. That's, imp- you know, important. Like one of the things I've been you know, really trying to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably overly annoying about with some of our 
our uh, vendor reps, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, Brees or whoever, is like if they don't have the information that I want, then I'm going to move on to another provider, you know, another, you know, raw material, uh, you know, because I can get that information. For example, one of the things I really like that uh, Hop Center does now, and uh, of course Weirman does it because the Germans are awesome, uh, is that they have QR codes on the side of all their bags. And if you want to know what, you know, if you're trying to stay consistent and you're, you know, if you're one, you say, you, you know, one of the things we've seen uh, is uh, drift in our mash pHs. And, and, and that was a little bit, uh, it was all 100%. Uh, we had, couldn't get some M10, so we were using Munich, you know, 10 from, from Brees. And that had to happen for about a month, you know, and we saw some shifts in our mash pHs that, you know, we were, I don't want to say concerned about, but, you know, obviously at the end of the day, we're trying to get, a, you know, a conversion. And, and, and we want to hit those numbers. So uh, we wanted that pH to be where it's always at. So we had noticed a little bit of a drift in that. So I had contacted uh, the one vendor and said, hey, do you have you know a lot analysis that includes pH on this? No, we don't have that. I was like, why not? Because I can get it from Wireman. You know, and I can get it from Wireman just by taking my phone and, and, and hitting the QR code. You know, or For example, our guys uh, back at the brewery, if there's no uh, alpha acid listed on the box, you know, they don't need to ask us to call you know, Hopsteiner or Yakima Chief, um, they can either take the code off, like the, the batch code off, and they can go right to YCH's website and plug it in, and boom, they have it. Or in the case of Hopsteiner now, being very much like uh, Wireman, you can, they have a QR code and boom. You know, so we, in our production side, they have an iPad, they run everything through, so they can take it off the base, go over the camera, click it, and they get all the information they need right there without having to ask, you know, the head brewer or, or you know, or the our lead brewer Tom. So, Giving them as much information as possible, I think, is super important. And, and, and to the point about raw materials and, and, and ingredients, like that's the, gonna be the factor. And I, I think one of the reasons why, uh, personally, I think that, like for example, German beer, you know, is so good. Um, you know, it's one of those things where you go to Germany, it's hard to have a bad beer. Even what they consider bad beer, you're like, this is pretty good. <laughs> like, it's very rare you run into. Sure. You know, the, you, there's obviously differences. You know, like this Hellas is better than that Hellas, but I. I'm hard pressed to think of a of a of a beer I've had in Germany that I wasn't like, wow, this is garbage, you know. But that's because German brewers, in particular, are very ingredient driven. Um, you know, they're always looking for top quality ingredients, top, whether it be hops or barley, um, and that's sort of gone. It's just it hasn't been a focus, or it hasn't been something that's been a priority to uh, American craft brewers because you know American craft brewers are like we, let's brew this, let's brew this, let's brew this. It's more about you know the experimentation or like the, the freedom and independence you have as a brewer, which is great. You know, those are you know, obviously super important things that, you know, part of the reason why I do what I do as well. But I also think at the end of the day that if you're not getting involved in, you know, more, uh, you know, on, on a basic level with where your raw materials are coming from, you're going to have those issues, you know, and we've, some things are in your control and some things aren't, you know, you have no, you know, if again, the hop side, if you're not buying 5,000 pounds of these varieties, you're not going to be able to do selection. You can get a contract, but you're not going to be able to do selection. So you're going to be beholden to what they send you. And to a certain extent, you can do the same thing, you know, as you get up in, in, in numbers and production, you can do the same thing with barley, you know, with two row or pills. And you can say, all right, here's the, the four lots that, you know, we have available in the rail cars right now. Which do you want? And you can look at that model analysis and say, well, this is more in line or exactly in line with what we've been using all year. That's what I want. You know, as opposed to them just saying, you know, sending you whatever they send you. Right. You know, so that's something that's going to, I think, really uh, make a difference. And the breweries that are doing that are the ones that are going to, you know, I'm not going to say there's a bubble coming, but, you know, if there were to be a bubble, you know, the ones that are doing that and concentrating on quality and, and, and are ingredients driven, um, 
Well, that touches on an interesting point. There's a tension between that uh, uh, necessary creativity in the craft beer world and driving innovation forward and coming up with new ideas, engaging with drinkers with, uh, you know, with new beers, uh, exploring new flavors versus that old world focus on iteration and uh, continuous development and dialing in and perfecting, you know, those beers. One thing, you know, that's been become immediately apparent to me is that especially when you start tasting one-off collaboration beers, most of them are suck. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's, there are occasional great, great collaboration beers. I'm not, not saying that that's not a, not a thing that people should do, but, uh, you know, everyone knows that the more times you brew something, the better you get at it. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, of course, the more times you brew something on a commercial scale, then the more uh, in-depth you can get with those ingredients and the more you can understand the differences between those ingredients. And, of course, the more larger volume, and, you know, as we've said earlier, the, you know, you can select better ingredients because you can contract for larger mm-hmm. amounts. Uh, and so that's a that's kind of a basic tension that we see now in craft beer between, uh, you know, that, that repetition and getting better at it versus that constant innovation. Uh, I mean, I imagine it's a tough one to balance for you as a craft brewer. It, it is. And I mean, I'll use an example that's happening in Pennsylvania right now is that uh, Pennsylvania and Governor Tom Wolf have just initiated this program as part of the Pennsylvania Preferred. It's part of the Department of Agriculture. So it's uh, really encouraging manufacturers, you know, especially in the food and beverage, to use agricultural products in the state of Pennsylvania. And obviously, Pennsylvania being the largest producing volume craft beer uh, state in the country. Uh, it, it helps that we have Yingling and Sam Adams in our backyard too. I mean, you have a you know the the, the Yingling Brewery, the main you know, brewery in Pottsville, and then you have uh, the Trexler Town uh, Sam Adams Brewery. So they, they 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 help the numbers as well as obviously we have some brewers like Victory that are, are pumping out some you know fair amount of beer. But uh, to encourage the brewers in Pennsylvania to use more Pennsylvania-based ingredients, they've created a program as part of the Department of Agriculture, their preferred PA preferred program. Um, so you can sign on, sort of like the Independent Craft Brewers uh, logo you can put on your, your packaging now from the Brewers Association. There's a little PA preferred logo you can use as long as you meet these certain requirements. And I've had a few uh, of the local malt companies uh, reach out to us and, and say, hey, you know, you want to get, you know, jump on board and be a part of this. I, I was actually quoted in, in Levittown Now, uh, online web, website for the Levittown uh, newspaper, I, I wasn't misquoted, and I'll say that much, but uh, it didn't make me look good. <laughs> Basically, just said that we weren't focusing and it wasn't a priority to us. And oh, wait, it, let me get this straight. You upset somebody with a quote to the press. I don't think I upset him at all. Uh, I just, <laughs> he just, uh, the way, in context, the way he used it made me look like a jerk, which is fine because I wasn't trying to be a jerk when I said it. I basically, what I had said to him was like, this isn't a, a pro, it's, it's definitely something we would like to do. I mean, obviously, yeah. I mean, if you can, it's a, it, that's a selling point. You know, if you can, you know, make a beer out of locally sourced, you know, raw, you know, raw materials and ingredients, and it tastes the way you want it to taste, and it tastes the way it should, then you, 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 you know, even if it costs a little bit more, you can sell it a little bit more because, you know, there is a drive, you know, by consumers to be more local, which is great. It's exactly what we want to do. But the problem we have um, is that all of these smaller, you know, m- you know, micro monsters and, and, and come with, you know, some of the hop farms that are, are popping up here and there, they aren't brewers or they're home brewers, but they aren't professional brewers, so they don't understand you know, completely what we're trying to do or what we do. You know, they don't understand the volume. I, I, I can't use a local malt company to provide us with our Munich 10 or, you know, or our Vienna malt for our you know, Vienna lager because they're doing batches of 2,000 pounds you know, per shot, and we're using you know, a little less than 2,000 for a tank. 
you know, so what they would take to make, you know, a batch that they're then going to sell to either homebrew stores or other brewers, they just can't, and they can't make it fast enough. They can't turn enough of it for us to do that all the time. It's more, it's a specialty thing. We've done it. I mean, we just made a, a PA malt version of Churchville Lager that I was really happy with. I actually was trying to use Pennsylvania hops as well, but no one's growing, whole, you know, holy yeah. Tower Tower or, uh, you know, Tetnanger. Uh, in quantities that you know, either that I could you know could find in Pennsylvania right. anyway, but that's the, that's the issue. Like I got a buddy who keeps on texting me because his parents, uh, you know, uh, just started a hop farm and he's all stoked on you know. I and mean, I'm glad I'm glad he's stoked on it. I mean, and, and I would never want to discourage uh, anyone from doing this, but they, these are people that are not involved in the brewing industry that don't understand that like. You know, you want to bring a new variety of hop that's, you know, to the market, that's $5 million in 10 years. You know, that's not going to happen overnight. And then the Cascade or the Centennial or the Chinook that you're growing in Pennsylvania isn't going to be the same as those hop, you know, the terroir, to steal right. a term from wine. You know, that, that, that terroir in, in, in the Northwest is producing something distinctively different than hops from Michigan, hops from Wisconsin, hops from New York, hops from Pennsylvania. And it's not that I don't want to use those, but I'm not going to change, you know, the Chinook that we're getting in, you know, from the Pacific Northwest suddenly the PA Chinook because you're growing it. And even if you could grow enough to supply us, which you can't, not yet, uh, and maybe never, more than likely never, because you just don't have the acreage, you know, you're not going to get out of that. Like you, you know, every, th- you know, 15 barrel, you know, brew of County Line, the last edition in, in Whirlpool is 11 pounds of Simcoe and in, in, in Centennial, you know, like you're, you're probably getting 200 pounds out of that, you know, your first year of hop that may not even be any good. You know, what's the analysis? You know, you're not, you're not professional brewers, but you, again, they're agricultural people, but again, that doesn't make the hops good. You know, their intention or their ability to grow is probably there, but if you haven't been, you know, if you're not part of the Peralt family, then what do you have? You know, if you're not, you know, one of the families from Yakima that have been doing this for you know hundred you know plus years, you know, that's there's experience and knowledge there that you know you you need that learning curve is gotta you know swing real hard and real fast. And you, but you also need to work closely with brewers because you have to realize that I mean we just selected twenty thousand pounds of hops for four varieties, and that's two-thirds of our contract you know i mean the, the our, our hop contract this year is worth more than the mortgage on my house you know <laughs> so i know that they're not growing that you know and if they are growing that you know that quantity i guarantee you it's not the same so there's that's got a that that connection has to be made because there's a disconnect between that you know if if they can make well, two, it seems there's probably a target market for those those hops is. farmers with smaller brewers than it you is, that, yeah. that do focus more on those one off beers. Oh, they, where they, they, they can definitely are. They definitely are focusing yeah. on those. Other, but I think that the you know again it's sort of like going to the bank and trying to start the brew in the first place. As soon as you see a you know say a brewery, they have this idea of something that's completely different than what you're actually right. trying to do. And and it's you know you, you see it when you do tours with with people that come in the brewery. They look at the brew house and they they're like oh. How much that cost? Like thirty thousand? You're like, nah, man. <laughs> you kidding me? Like thirty thousand? You know, there's there's definitely a disconnect between what people you know understand and know about you know how beer's made, the ingredients we use. Uh, and, you know, there's so many different angles that go at it. It's you know, we, it's getting better. It's definitely. But it, it, the other side of it too is it's getting worse because there's so many people. I don't want to say that are trying to jump on the craft beer train, but they see the growth and, and rightfully so. If you see an industry that's hot and you are growing, you know, two row barley, why not? connect with, um, uh, you know, a local micro malter that can use it, you know, but that doesn't, you know, I'll use an example like our, our, our lead brewer, uh, our former lead brewer, uh, Jay, uh, Jason Rank, Jay Bird, he, uh, he left, he's now the head brewer at, um, 
at another brewery uh, in, in uh, Center City called Second Story. And they're connected. They actually uh, have a family farm. It's really cool. They try to do a lot of farm-to-table stuff, which I think is awesome. Um, but one of the things I know that they, they had their second harvest of barley this year, and uh, they didn't use any of the first year because it, you know, they had it, it, it analyzed and it was garbage. You know, that's because... Uh, and they're getting better at it, and they know that. You know, it's, and I know a few other people that have, have been doing the farm, you know, farm brewery thing, where they've had a lot of problems growing barley because, you know, just because you're a farmer, you know, especially in Pennsylvania, you've probably been growing corn or soybeans, you know, in switching over to barley and specifically to make barley that's good enough. You know, again, remember, barley that isn't good enough, you know, for brewers is used for cattle. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? So that's, that's you know, there, it has to be made to a high standard. It has to be grown to a high standard. And if you haven't been doing that for a long time, you're, you you need to, to jump that learning curve real hard. And then the other side is you can't, you know, you're supplying a, a, you know, a small percentage of, you know, you're not going to be able to, 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 to go to a larger brewery like, you know, not that they're a huge brewery. But, again, whether it's Trogues or Victory or, or, or Yards, like, they're going to do a one-off. You know, that's you're not right. going to supply them with hops and, and, and enough barley, you know. And I think that connection needs to be made a little bit more <laughs> more succinctly. But, uh, yeah, I, again, going back to the whole point, that's something that I think is going to be material, you know, raw material and ingredient-driven. I think that's going to be the differentiate, you know, differentiation between breweries that are making really exceptionally good beer and breweries that are just kind of towing the line, you know, staying in business. Start off 2018 right with a trip to Breckenridge, Colorado for the annual Big Beers, Belgians, and Barley Wines Festival. January 4th through 6th, meet top brewers from around the country, enjoy world-class skiing and snowboarding, attend special beer dinners, and taste some strong, inventive, and warming beers with fellow enthusiasts. Check out bigbeersfestival.com for more information. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.